I don't know about you, but the first time I remember this happening in my life was when I was probably about seven or eight years old. And I had a friend that lived across the street. His name was Milo. And he's the only guy, by the way, that I ever knew with that name. And uh, Milo, great guy, huge sports fan. Milo knew every player, their stats from the Detroit Tigers, from I think the time the Tigers were actually organized as a ball team. Uh, so he loved sports, loved to play sports, and, and Milo and I were good friends growing up. I was over at his house one afternoon, and Milo asked his mom if it was okay if I stayed for dinner. Well, Milo's mom said it's okay with her if it's okay with my mom, and so lived right across the street, you know, run over. Mom, can I have dinner at Milo's house? Sure, that's okay with me. And so I remember, in fact, in my mind right now, this is a lot of years later. In fact, it's probably 50 years later. It's a long time. So 50 years later, I can still picture the, the dining room table. It was a little kitchen table. The, the placement of the oven, how the room was set up. And I'm sitting in the Warren's kitchen and she serves dinner that evening. She was serving something pretty basic. We were having hamburgers that evening and as she served the hamburgers, I can remember as a kid and it really, it struck me like something is wrong with how she is doing this whole thing. Now, now you can serve hamburgers, you can prepare hamburgers a lot of different ways. You can fry them. I think that's fine. Preferably, you would grill them. I think that's the way God intended. <laughs> but she did something that I'd never seen before. I don't know that I've seen it since, but, but Mrs. Warren cooked the burgers in the oven, okay? And as an eight-year-old, this is highly offensive to me, okay? <laughs> so she served the meal, and I can just remember the standard by which I had set the cooking of this meal was clearly violated. Something was not what it was supposed to be. Now, I suspect this would have happened. I suspect that if I would have said to Milo, hey, would you come over and have dinner at our house? And I suspect that if my mom fried a burger, now she has, I think she still has it, she has this cast iron flat grilling iron thing and, um, and she grills burgers on that and she always has, it actually collects the grease around the edges. It's this, she's had it since the days of Noah. So this thing's been around a long time and it was intended for cooking burgers. I think that if Milo would have come to my house and sat down and my mom served burgers, I think this would have happened. I think he may well have said, she's not cooking the burgers the right way. Or he would have come to his senses and said, finally, someone is cooking the burgers the right way. I, I think what he would have done, though, is I think he would have said, there's something that's off about this because it's not how my family does it. So tonight, we're going to have, for lack of a, a better expression, we're going to have what we're calling a call to worship. It's the, what I've titled our message tonight, but m maybe a better title would have been, I, I don't have it up here, but... Maybe a better title would have been a family conversation about worship. 
I, I think it's helpful for people to understand that there can be aspects of worship that are family driven. At Campus Church, we have quite a history. 1974 is when Pastor Bob Taylor became the first pastor at Campus Church. There almost could be at the beginning of this message an apology on my part, to be quite honest. And if it's just a family message, I think at times I have a tendency to leave things left hanging or uncertain. And I think there could be uncertainty on the part of some, not all, but on the part of some, regarding what's campus church's practice. How does the family address the matter of, and, and, and this is not a surprise that, that we would talk about this now, but how does campus church handle the matter of applause in a service? So rather than wait till the end of the message, which is kind of how I organize my thoughts to say, I'm gonna preach this whole message and then I'm gonna say, this is what we do with applause. I'm going to say what we do with applause and then I'm going to give a call to worship. The apology in a sense could be that there has been on the part of some uncertainty, maybe not on the part of most. I think at times on the part of some, there is a family way to do certain things like your church family, the church family you grew up in. It would be interesting if we just asked our own pastoral team, what's your history as it pertains to worship? What's that look like? And then the expression of, because applause in a service is not worship, it's simply an expression of or a result of worship. So if we asked our pastoral team, what's that like for you in your history? We'd have quite a variety of responses. That, that's because different families do it different ways. The goal for this message is to do anything but cause division. In fact, the goal for the message would be to actually address something that could be in a church, in this local church, very divisive. And that's never God's intention with anything that the church does. We'll address that a little bit further later. So the purpose, of course, of the message is to say, well, campus church historically and, and practically and, and currently asks for people to have a, a silent response. Sometimes people say amen, sometimes people just like, wow, thank you, Lord. But our, our request as a church is that we not applaud. And it's not because it's a moral matter. And I think that's extremely important for us to understand. Now, sometimes people can say, well, well if it's not a moral matter, then why not? Hopefully we'll address that a little bit further as we walk through this message as well. So a call to worship. So, you know, forgive the how do you cook a hamburger illustration, but the whole idea is there are different ways and, and different approaches and not that one's right and one's wrong. Some could be better than others, but honestly, when you talk about the morality of it, there is not something attached to that specifically. Following the Reformation, there was a desire to not allow the church to define what is worship. We, we get phrases like sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, 
or only by the scriptures. Those are, those are good phrases and good desires. So we got these confessions, the Westminster Confession, the, the Baptist Confession of, I think it's 1689. We had these confessions because there was this desire after Luther says, wow, what is the church doing? The church has no scriptural authority to do that. They're teaching things that are beyond the realm of scripture. So, so, hey, let's look and see what does Scripture say, and we will confess these as the truths of Scripture. In, in what we refer to, again, I'm, I'm not pointing to this as the absolute, but I'm, I'm wanting to point to it as at least a, a recognition of what did churches say constituted worship. So that 1689 Baptist Confession in, in the paragraph that's under the section of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Here's what the first paragraph says. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so pause here for just a minute. What they're saying is that we don't get to say, I'm going to worship God any way I want. Please know, applause is a separate issue from this. So don't confuse the fact that he's saying that uh, this is not prescribed by Scripture. Don't get ahead and don't make a connection that we're not trying to make. Okay, so what they are saying is scriptures are the place where we need to define and define what is biblical worship. That same confessional goes on and it says this in paragraph five. It starts to say these things are absolutes in worship. The reading of the scriptures, preaching, the hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, godly fear. The point of these historical confessions makes that it's trying to make is that our formal worship must be defined by the scriptures. We are not the ones who say, well, let me tell you, I want to worship God like, well, there may be some room for that, but not outside of the realm of scripture. So it's our starting point, sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone. Prescribed aspects of worship are revealed all throughout scripture. But as we consider this topic, we understand that worship is a response of the heart that is informed by the mind and focused on God. There is clearly a heart aspect to our worship. And if that's removed, if something's broken, if something's off, if something's defiantly wrong about my heart, then no matter what I do for worship, it also is broken. So what is worship? Well, there's a heart aspect to it. There's a head aspect. In other words, I have to think accurately about God as it pertains to my worship. 
And then there is something that actually becomes this, this sole focus on God and then the outpouring of the same. Worship is never about me. Let me say that again. Worship is never about me. Hence, it's never about you. That's not our focus when we come together. So we, we may, in a sense, sit around someone else's table, but when we do so, we do so with an understanding that even, even this is not about me. There is something collective now, congregational, about how we're gathering together for worship. We know worship is far more than something we can simply do. For example, you can do a lot of things when your heart isn't in it. So how many of you, um, I mean, I can mow the lawn. I can remember as a kid, hey, uh, go out and mow the lawn. It's fall right now. I grew up in Michigan in fall. We have lots of leaves. I can remember my dad saying, Jeffrey, get out there and, and I want you to rake the yard. Oh man, I want to do anything except rake the yard. Can I rake the yard, even do a good job at it if my heart's not in it? And the answer is yes. Why? Because I liked to live, okay? <laughs> so if my dad said, get out there and rake the yard, my heart might not be in it, but my back is, okay? <laughs> and it's not my backside, okay? So I'm going to go rake the yard. Can I do homework if my heart's not in it? Can I teach effectively? Uh, can I work at Chick-fil-A and say my pleasure if my heart's not in it? And the answer is, yeah, you can do a lot of things, even though your heart may not be in it. But there's something you can't do if your heart's not in it. You cannot worship God. You cannot come before the high, holy God and worship him in, in beauty, worship him in spirit, worship him in truth, if there is not something that originates in the heart, speaks accurately to the mind, and then becomes this overflow of the same. In Matthew chapter 15, verses eight and nine, the Bible say, says, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching the doctrines, the commandments of men. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. Wow, be careful about that. It's, it is why, in full transparency, it is why I cannot say that, um, that applause is wrong and should never be practiced in a church. Because that would be teaching, in my humble estimation, that would be teaching the doctrines of men. So I can't say that. I can say that churches do possess authority to function within the realm of scripture and then make conclusions as to what does that worship congregationally look like. But oh, to teach as doctrine something that originates with men be very careful, cautious of that. There are people at Campus Church. I mean, there are people here that say, listen, I, I think I don't want applause in church. There are people who'd say, I would love to have. And people, I suppose, that are somewhere in between. You just have to be so cautious to say, okay, how do we, how do we approach this now? 
well, be careful what you teach regarding the, the, the doctrines if they originate with men. The word vain, the people draw nigh me with their mouth, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me. The word vain there, it just means empty. It means that there's no purpose to this. Then worship, if the heart's not rightly aligned with God, worship is just empty. It's going through the motions, but there's no true worthship of the recognition of God. John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Okay, what does he say? He says, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We've addressed this already, but clearly it doesn't mean we worship detached from our bodies. We worship him in spirit and in truth. No, our bodies are a part of us. They're the means by which we actually communicate those things that are in our heart. For, for out of the abundance of the heart, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So, so when we're saying, well, we just worship him in spirit, we just sit there and spiritually, no, 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 there is some overflow that actually impacts our physical bodies, what we do with that. We might say it something like this, obviously genuine worship begins in my spirits connected to truth. Worship begins as a spiritual, inward matter and must always be connected to the truth of God, that being his nature and his character. All of that to say that worship is prescribed by God and then performed by man. Now, does God detail every aspect of our worship? Well, it tells us those things that are absolute. Scripture gives us those. So we know there are... There are things that if you're going to worship, this has to be a part of. Uh, for example, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is a, a it, it'd be foundational regarding our worship of God. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Ooh, vitally important to what's the church supposed to be doing? Uh, Colossians 3.16, again, a directive, a letter, an epistle written by the apostle Paul through the, 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 the clarity, the, the words of the Holy Spirit given to this church, giving them instruction for worship. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we know then that there are some predetermined, some matters of worship prescribed by God. They transcend culture and personal preference. These are the absolutes. They're the non-negotiables. So are there some aspects of worship that are negotiable? Of, of our form, our content is established. And again, we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment. But our form, are there some variables? Do we have some room for, for I don't know, some, some, some variety in our form? Yeah, we do. Okay, so what areas might that touch? This is not exhaustive, a couple things that I, I jotted down. First of all, frequency of worship. Frequency. 
Okay, here at Campus Church, we, we worship congregationally, collectively. We do so through Bible study groups on Sunday morning. That's oftentimes more instructional. We do so through what we call our worship service Sunday morning when we all gather together. We meet again on Sunday night. Tonight we're gathered, we're assembled on Wednesday night. Is that the only way you can do it? And the answer is, is clearly no. Clearly no. I, I don't mean to, um, I don't want to be negative about anyone's form of worship, but, but I'm, I'm telling you, I have no conviction that the church has to meet um, Sunday morning twice, Sunday evening once, Wednesday night once, and, and maybe throw in a Bible study throughout the week just for good measure, okay? The, the early church, they, they typically, from what we understand, they were meeting daily from house to house. We get the sense that they met on the Lord's Day, this, this day that now is established under the new covenant, that the church collectively established themselves as this place of worship. And we even historically, we have evidences that they established these locations of worship. Well, well, you know, as a church today, we don't meet daily. As a church, we have our schedule. What if... What if Campus Church said, we're no longer going to, please don't be silly or, or certainly immature about this, but what if Campus Church said, we're no longer going to have Bible study groups? We're not doing that. There would be some, I suspect, that would just say, now what's going to happen? This is terrible. We're not going to have Bible study, a Sunday school what, what churches don't have Sunday school? But quite frankly, if you take the, the history of the church, Sunday school is somewhat of a modern invention. I mean, so, some would ascribe that to Moody. Some would say that, listen, there were, there were so many children and many of them orphaned that they said, listen, the church can help educate these children and what better place to, to nurture and, and raise them up in the ways of the Lord. I'm, I am in... I am not interested in getting rid of our Bible study groups, but they're not an essential aspect of what's been prescribed by God. So can there be some variety and frequency? Some of you probably have churches that have been part of your history that maybe they just meet Sunday morning. L listen, I, I, I can't say biblically that, you know, that's so sad. This last Sunday, we didn't have an evening service. That's a newer invention of our, newer, newer schedule, not invention, but schedule of ours. So boy, for years and years and years, there would have never been a time where we took a Sunday afternoon off. But we do so occasionally right now. I don't believe that's a sign of the times. Oh, so sad. Signs of the time. I don't believe that, okay? Do you know what I believe it is? I believe it's a really nice, comfortable afternoon. Well allowed in the pages of scripture. Can frequency vary with churches? Yes, it can. Um, how about location? Location, where the church meets. Um, I, I have, now I think there has to be some components of church and we don't have time to address this, but, but basically you have 
two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. You have two offices, pastor and deacon. You have two obligations, evangelism and edification. Those are absolutes for the assembly of believers, for a church to be a, a real church. So you can't just get together and say, hey, let's do church. There is something that God's left for us that's organizationally important. But can that structure meet in all kinds of locations? Absolutely. Some of you have been in other countries where churches have no physical structure, but the church assembles. They, they sometimes meet under a shade tree. And I've preached in those churches. They sometimes clear out everybody's stuff, and I'm not exaggerating this. They sometimes clear out everybody's stuff from the mud hut and the thatched roof, and that's where church meets. And I've preached in those settings. Can location vary? Well, of course it can. Um, what about dress? Who thought there would be the day when someone would stand in the pulpit of campus church untied, okay? Don't start applauding, okay? <laughs> but who thought? Okay, so is that one of those absolutes? And listen, this is a good illustration. Is it okay for someone to say, I want to wear a tie to church? Is that okay? Certainly. I'm, I'm not trying to point out someone or something, but is it okay for a person to say, I just, I don't know, there's something about when I wear a tie to church, I, I feel like I am coming in, in an attire that allows me to more purely worship God. Seriously, praise the Lord. But, but, do you have to wear a tie to worship God? Thank the Lord, no, okay? It was, it was we had a, a guest speaker recently and I said, now, again, our, typically we don't wear a tie on Wednesday night, but you're welcome to if you'd like. And he said, wow, no. He said, you know, I always wear a tie. I'm from a church that, that really we always wear ties. He says, it's gonna be kind of nice to preach tonight without a tie. And, and I, I got it because it's not biblically prescribed. Musical style. Last, last year, um, I preached a series of messages that we titled, Does It Really Matter? And one of the topics we covered was music. Is there, is there room for different musical styles in church? And the answer is yes. We'll, we'll touch on that in just a moment, but yeah, there is. Um, what about our response in worship? Like a, applause or no applause. Is there room for that? The answer is yes. Yes. So I hope everyone understands. I'm not trying to build a moral case regarding our response in worship. To be clear, I am not saying that any location or any form of dress or any style of music, or any response is appropriate for worship. So let me say that once more. I am not saying that any location or any form of dress or any style of music or any response is appropriate for worship. What I am saying is there's room for variety. In, in places where I have worshiped, in India, the worship is loud, okay? I have been in, I've preached in churches in India 
And to them, it's just like, this is how we normally worship. But to me, it's like, whoa, that is so loud. I preach like this, you know, because it was so like, whoa, man, overwhelming. In Africa, uh, worship, especially music, was rhythmic. And there's a, a symmetry to it and a beauty to it. I, I would watch a choir sing. And again, please, I, I'm not trying to um, be stereotypical, but I've preached in places in Africa where they have never um, seen a person who has a skin color different than their own. So to, to see someone come to their village and we drove miles to go back and to hear their, their expressions of worship were something that was, was culturally, geographically appropriate and an overflow of the heart. The, the, the movement of, 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 of a, a bare dirt floor and bare feet and to watch a person sing and the rhythm of their worship. When the Bible speaks in Revelation about the nations gathered around the throne and people of every tribe and tongue and nation, I can't help but think that there's going to be this variety of worship around the throne that, that comes together in such a way that magnifies and exalts Jesus. In Thailand, the worship was very quiet. In the United Kingdom, very reserved. In Mexico, really relaxed. Okay. But the content was all the same. Content, 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 all the same. There, there wasn't this content that was, was unique here, unique here. No, 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 no. The expressions of worship were unique. But the, the truth of worship was all the same. No one should ever say, well, the way I like to worship doesn't involve someone telling me what to do. Well, that's a problem because we then become the central focus that is driving what we want as our own content. Remember, worship is never exclusively about me. It's about something beyond me. The Bible says it this way, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Sadly, we may become completely satisfied if the form was to our preference, but the content was misguided. This is the wrong place to settle. And so we have to say, okay, I, I'm not the central focus. Even when we gather together for worship, there's supposed to be something of reproving. What are the truths of, of God? What are the truths of Scripture? Reprove that to me. Rebuke. Mm. Reproving is like, okay, I'm setting this out there. This is when we come to church. We're setting out this is what's right. Rebuke. Ooh, that's wrong. We sense, even as we hear the word of God, I'm not in line with that. I'm out of step with that. Rebuke. Exhort. Come on, you can do this. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And how? With all long suffering. And with what? With doctrine, with the teachings of the scripture. 
Our content should be driven by what God's revealed to us about himself. This includes his nature, his character, his work of redemption, his instruction for the way our lives should be lived that allow mankind to become accurate reflectors of the one who created us. And when content becomes our first priority, then form will have its proper focus. In fact, when content becomes our first priority, we can actually even give deference to other forms that, that the local family may have. For example, I can worship in churches where they applaud after everything. Man, I, I, can, I can worship without any, I don't know, check in my spirit. I can also worship at, at a place called Campus Church and, and do so without the, the audible, the, the responsive sound. Why? Well, because to me, there is something about content that is supposed to be supreme and then puts other lesser things in its rightful place. So what does the Bible say if, if there's, you know, room for negotiation on our forms of worship? What's the Bible say actually about applause? There are about a dozen times that the Bible references applause in Scripture. So I'm not going to show all of them, but they basically all say the same thing. Let's look at a couple of them quickly. 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 12. And he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and they said, God save the king. Well, this is some opportunity for celebration. It's like, whoa, hey, God saved the king and the people applauded. And when we look at Job chapter 27, verses 22 and 23, for God shall cast upon him and not spare. He would fain flee out of his hand. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. This was an expression of contempt or anger against God. And, and clapping is part of this expression of, you know, this hiss toward God, this smacking of their hands together. Psalm 47, verse number one. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Here again, we have this clapping as an expression of praise to God, this overflow of joy. Lamentations 2.15, all that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem saying, is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty? The joy of the whole earth? Here now we get clapping as this, this form of derision. This, this, this casting some sense of doom on the place and, and this contempt for the place. Isaiah 55 verse 12, for ye shall go out with joy, be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Again, we see hand clapping used as a means to communicate praise and thanksgiving. I'm saying all of that, I, I suspect, to address both groups who'd say, I would love to have or I don't want to have. Well, you can't build a case scripturally in my estimation that says it is always right or it's always wrong. It's just another form of expression. So there are more biblical examples, but, but suffice it to say, you can't build a case biblically for or against. So can it be used in worship? 
Must it be used in worship? Can churches differ on its use? Can it be used? Here's some considerations. It should never be manipulated. Never manipulated. In other words, clapping is not part of worship. It's only a form of response. Some might say the way I worship is, is through. The, no, 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 actually it's not. Clapping is only supposed to be in spirit and in truth. Well, that's worship, spirit and truth. And then clapping would just be a response to spirit and truth. I've been in services that are exactly the overflow of that. And I suspect you have as well. One of the first times on this campus, now Campus Church shares, a, shares we, we rent um, facilities from Pensacola Christian College. So a couple of years ago, I think three years ago, Shane Lewis was preaching. If you were here as a student, you would remember the, the Bible conference. I was in attendance at that Bible conference and, and one of the groups from PCC sang, um, Behold Our God. There was such a spontaneous response to worship. And it was done in the form of applause. And, and we stood to our feet. And, and we, we worshiped God as the overflow of spirit and truth. I've also been in services where it's just manipulated. Where something's been sung, presented, communicated, and the power of what was sung was not this, this overflow of approval or of, of an applauding response. It was weighty, heavy. And then there's, there's some attempt to manipulate, to insert a desire. And, and I think it's, I can't judge motive, so I can't judge motive. But, it, but if applause in a service is ever intended to manipulate it's not of God it's it's a responsiveness that is a broken response and then I would suspect that it actually inhibits or dampens the spirit of worship it's never man-centered in worship I man I I applauded all kinds of things I, I, I think at a, how many of you have ever been to a kindergarten graduation before? Ever been to one? I applaud for everything. Like the kids walk out, oh, that's so good, you know. They say they're ABCs, they're brilliant, you know. I mean, just, whatever, you just, I'm applauding everything. Um, I've seen incredible, like, oh, that was incredible. And the only thing, you're at a sporting event and you see something happen and, Man, have you ever been someplace before where the unthinkable happens? I was, I was actually at the game when, um, when Tim Tebow was playing for the Denver Broncos and in the playoffs they beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, it was miraculous, okay? I'm watching Tim Tebow. The whole game is like, this is pathetic. This is terrible. This is like, oh, what in the world? He just scored a touchdown. Okay, man, and I'm all over the place. But in church, applause should not be because, man, he nailed the high note. Because now what I have done is I have shifted a focus from the one that the person is supposed to be magnifying and the person has stepped into the, the magnifying glass. It should never be because like, wow, that was an impressive you know, arrangement 
Or, ooh, the choir nailed it and they finished big and boom! Now, now, where, where is the spirit and truth? Now what we're doing is we are recognizing, some, there's place for recognizing giftedness. Lots of places. I mean, at an uh, artist series, if you're a college student, you come, it's like, wow, there was something really impressive. Talent, ability, giftedness, hard work. Oh, we recognize that. Great job. But not in church. Applause in a service should never be connected to. To me, it's one of the, I don't know, one of the, the hurdles that I have a hard time getting past here for us at Campus Church. Because we have so much in, in my mind. I, I can listen on any given day to whatever we present musically. And I can say, man, that's good. Some, some of it, like, wow, if it was just to be meditative and thoughtful and do, do I applaud there, do I not? If something was not done as well as it was last week, do it, oh, well, I probably should because we did last week. It should never be man-centered. Our response to worship must always remain focused on the one we came to worship. Never misplaced. A few weeks ago, um, in fact, at the beginning of the semester, I was invited to College Chapel to, to, at PCC and shared some thoughts about campus church. One of the things that we, we addressed was, you know, never misplaced. If, if I was sitting in someone's home and, um, I don't know, they, they I, I don't know how, how do they do it there. I would be really careful to watch what they do. The example I used in College Chapel for many that were not there is I said, I walked into a home in Japan one time with my shoes on and all the shoes are lined up by the door and here I just go walking in with my shoes on. And the, the, the people were gracious. They didn't say anything. They, you know, you could see like, I thought, oh, they like my shoes, you know. <laughs> but it was, it was misplaced. I was misplaced. I wasn't trying to be offensive. It, but in my home, it's okay. In fact, sometimes people come to my home and they, they start taking their shoes. I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Misplaced. So, so I would want to, I'd want to know that church, that that group that called out assembly how did they do that and then must it be used in a worship service our time prevents me from addressing that but the answer is no it doesn't have to be we already know there are things that have to be part but certainly some things don't let me conclude with this there is something that all throughout the epistles it is themed over and over and over again. Paul addresses it in major ways in Ephesians. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. That is your calling. Wherewith ye are called with all lowliness. Lowliness. Ooh, there's some sense of humility. Meekness. 
strength under control. I can do this, but I don't have to. Long-suffering, patience, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There are so many pictures throughout scripture, but, and none of them are, are errant or wasted or haphazard. When, whenever the church assembles, it assembles unlike anything else on the face of the earth. Nothing else is like it. When the church assembles, it's not like a, a, a ball game. It's why I have some reservation, hesitation about just, I don't know, some response that would be appropriate at a ball game, but not in church. When church assembles, we are the, the visible representation of the body of Jesus Christ. When Christ hung on the cross, it was typical to conclude the crucifixion with the breaking of the bones but not one of his bones is broken. Why? Because it's a picture of the church, the body of Jesus. Why not his bones broken? Because it would have, it would have said the church can be fractured and the church is one body. If something like applause, I mean, think about this. If something like applause is used to fracture the body? How sad. There may come a day, there may come a day when as a church we say, hey, let's applaud in our services. I say that because it's not moral. We've just chosen as a church to say, this is kind of where we're at, this is who we are, and we're asking you to honor that. We applaud for baptism because it's an acknowledgement of an important step and we're telling that person, great job. We oftentimes applaud for children because it's not a moral matter and we want children to know, hey, we approve, this, this was a blessing. But typically for a, a regular, I don't know, presentation of something in a service, we don't. You say, well, how would we know if it's appropriate to? I don't know. I don't know. Watch Dr. Zach, okay? <laughs> Not too closely, but watch Dr. Zach. My, my prayer is that we will worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the psalmist said, the oil that flowed down over Aaron's beard, saturated his garments. And wherever Aaron, the high priest went, wherever he was, you got this powerful, wonderful aroma that was so pleasing. That, that's the analogy that he says, the unity of the body 
the unbroken, unfractured body of believers that assembles. May, it, may there be a sweetness to that aroma that is like the body, like the aroma of, of the ointment that flowed from Aaron. Applause is one little thing. I suspect that there's a group of people that will be broadcast literally around the world that are right now seated in this room. And you're gonna have all kinds of opportunities in churches to say, I, I wish we didn't do it that way. If you come down strong on that, I wish we didn't do it that way, make sure it's one of the essentials that's necessary for church. And if that doesn't change, find another church. But I would also say, you'll find yourself in situations and in churches where they're gonna do some things that's just like, oh, I wish it was this way. But it's just a matter of preference. May there be a sweetness to the aroma of your unity in that body that is typical of the unfractured body of Jesus Christ. May God bless us, Campus Church, with that spirit of unity.